tú me pones un, un éxito. Si, si tú no quieres hablar conmigo, dímelo para yo no llamarte ni molestarte, porque nada más quedaba tú. Real talk. Real people. Real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Yeah! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker Movement, Jules Duget. We have another exciting show for you, but before we get started, I want to remind everyone that this platform was built because often we were overlooked. We were put in boxes and labeled, but no longer. Our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. We have another amazing show for you, and today's guest is a great friend of mine. Her name is Felicia Newsom. She has an LMT. It's a licensed massage therapist. Uh, she also has an AS in Occupational Sciences from Swedish Institute in 2001. She also has a BA in Communications from Empire State College, a BPS MS in Acupuncture from Pacific College of Oriental Medicine. She created the Oncology Massage Training Program, Kata, in New York City in 2014 and was instrumental in the actualization of the National Certification Board for Therapeutic Massage and Bodywork. She holds a specialty certificate in Oncology Massage. She's also a New York licensed massage therapist and was recognized as being an Oncology Massage Specialist and Educator. The culmination of her experiences and career and observations and understandings that brought her to the founding of a very great network that was created called Advanced Massage Specialty Group in 2020. I am honored to introduce her all to you because she's a dear friend of mine for so many years and I love her so much. Felicia, welcome. How are you, my friend? Thank you, Jules. Thank you for having me. I am great. Uh, you made me sound so important when you read that. <laughs> I loved it. Because <laughs> you is. Because <laughs> I is. Because I yeah. is. <laughs> I is. <important>. So, <laughs> yeah. So, Feli, because I know you for so many years, can you tell everyone a little about you, just like your journey? How do you get to where you are right now, my friend? Well, it, it, my my journey it's my walk, right? My walk in life. And uh, you and I met at SUNY Empire State. <clears throat> and I was mm -hmm. at SUNY Empire State. Um, I had I was already a massage therapist. And um, I was there because I had gone to school, gone to college at SUNY, SUNY New Pulse when I was 27. And thought I graduated and then was told six or seven, eight, nine months later after walking and all of that, that I didn't have the degree that because I didn't take a math test. And so I wound up not trying to take the math test until later when I was like years and years later. And, and um, when that happened, it was, a, it was a blessing. I thought it was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Because when I called the school and said, okay, I'm ready to take the math test. I'm, I need to finish my degree at SUNY New Pulse. They said, well, no, you don't have enough credits because now the credits were more and you can't just take the degree. You just can't take the math test. You have to do something else. So I wound up going, transferring everything and going to SUNY um, Empire State, which was a blessing. It didn't feel like it at the time, but it was absolutely a blessing because it was the place that allowed me to express my creativity in the fact that 
I worked in the music industry for 16, 17, 18 years prior to going to, to um, Empire State. And I had, re I had resigned and, was, and became a massage therapist. And in the resigning, I didn't have a plan. Like I was working for Puffy. I was working for, in the, in the music industry, I was working behind the scenes. I was in recording studios. So I worked with a lot of famous people because I was in the recording studio when they were, being, when they were creating their, their things. And the last thing I did in the music industry was I uh, oversaw the building of a place called Daddy's House Recording Studio, which was owned by Puff Daddy. And honestly, at that time, as far as I know, I was the only black person, the only black woman who had the ability, who had, uh, who oversaw the building of a multi-million dollar recording studio in New York City. And so I had been doing that for maybe four years, five years. And one day I woke up and I realized I didn't understand where the, the music industry was going any longer. Now, mind you, I had all this time that I was there before. So I saw when the change was happening and, and hip hop, when rap was coming in. So I was part of that. Like I saw that when that was happening. Then I saw when hip hop was coming in. I saw, but now suddenly I didn't see what was happening and I didn't understand where I fit in. So I decided it was time for me to go, right? So I left. And when I left, I went left and I left on, let's say, April 29th was my last day of work. April 30th, I was on a plane going to Amsterdam because I knew I had to totally disconnect myself from something that I had been doing for a long time and also thought that I was going to retire from. Like this was going to be what I do for the rest of my life. And I realized that that wasn't true. And so I left. I left and went to Europe traveled around, stayed for a few months, you know, was in Amsterdam. And I wound up in Italy. I stayed in Italy a lot, a long time, because I stayed on the Amalfi Coast. And I, But I was traveling around. I went to Amsterdam. I went to Paris. I went to Barcelona. And again, I, went, I wound up in Italy, traveled around in Italy, but mostly was on the Amalfi Coast. And in the process of doing that, I discovered that people didn't live the way we live here in the United States. Other countries, people take time and spend time with their family. They take time and take two, three hour lunches, right? They close down the shop when they're mm. taking their lunches. So it, it became like, wow, this is a whole different way. Like, and not that I'm stupid because it's far from that, right? But when you're in this rat race, when you're in this uh, this movement, especially in New York, there's all this, and I was in the music industry, oh, like craziness, right? So now I'm in another space and I'm seeing like, hmm, and this is not new. This is their lifestyle. This is normal for them to take time to spend lunchtime with their with their people, you know, like their friends and peers and, you know, literally go out to lunch, close shop down, go out to lunch, go home, take a little nap, come back to work, open the shop back up like it's brand new. And then in the evening, go hang out with their family, eat dinner with their family. That was um, that was interesting to me. So when I came home, mind you, when I left the music industry, I didn't have a plan. All I knew is that I needed to not be in New York for a little while. And then I came home. And when I came home, I, I, I didn't have a plan, but I got massages the entire time I was in the music industry. Um, I got massaged probably two, three times a week because that was the thing that kept me sane. It was the thing that helped me to... Um, whatever stress I was in helped, helped, helped to alleviate it, right? So all I knew for sure was that massage was my friend. 
And there were some massage therapists that were amazing and then some that weren't. And sometimes I'd be thinking to myself, oh, I could do that better. When I'd be on the table, I'd be like, oh, I think I could do that better. Oh, I don't like that move, right? You know, critiquing the whole time, right? Not knowing nothing about massage. All I knew was that felt good or no, I don't like this one, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when I came home, I, I'm going to pause here for a second because I tend to have this little voice that kind of sits in the back here. And, and speaks to me every now and then. And it says something to me that out of the clear blue aim, got nothing to do with what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, it'll say something to me. And when I hear it, I go, right? Mm -hmm. But then I might not hear it again. So I, I'm, when, I, when, I, when I hear it, I have to recognize, okay, I heard it and this is why, and it's not like I don't hear what it says, I hear what it said, but I'm looking for it to say it again because I need a confirmation, but it's, it doesn't, I don't always get the confirmation. I just have to go with whatever this voice, whatever this little thing that is telling me to do. And I call it my little voice, right? And it's kind of like Becky something, right? And um, so that voice, when I came back from Europe, that voice said, go to massage school. Hmm. Didn't have a clue, wasn't a part of a plan, wasn't even something that I knew I could possibly do. I didn't know, but I did. I went and checked out massage school couple days after that voice told me that I told them that day no matter hook cook no, no matter what I got to do to get in when this next class starts in the next couple of weeks tell me what I have to do because I'm gonna be in this new, this next class and they were like all right so I did everything I needed to do I went to school um, discovered uh, that anatomy was really interesting but neurology how the how the body works how the brain works how the, the central nervous system works that opened me up to understanding things that I couldn't quite possibly explain today, but I could tell you for sure at the time that I was taking those classes, I could read quantum physics. I could actually read stuff that I couldn't read before because suddenly my brain was open. It was ready to receive. My spirit was ready to receive, right? It was mm. just some other stuff going on, right? So I became a massage therapist in 2000. December of 2000, I took my licensing exam and that's when I became a massage therapist. And then uh, I worked in spas, some high-end spas in New York. I worked at uh, some high-end hotels and, you know, I, I like the work. I love, I love massaging people. I love looking them in their eyes, seeing that there's like a grayness or the whites of their eyes, not quite white and that they are, um, you know, tired or stressed out or whatever. And I could see it in their eyes them get on the table and 60 minutes later, uh, 90 minutes later, they're getting off the table and the whites of their eyes are white and their eyes are clear and bright. And they're like, wow, that was amazing, right? So I understood that I, this was technically my calling while, while working in the music industry was my child dream, the dream of my childhood becoming a massage therapist, even though I didn't recognize it at the time, becoming a massage therapist is really my calling in this world. It is what I'm supposed to be doing with my hands. Um, and so I, I became a massage therapist and I was doing that for a few years. And I got a friend that called me and said one day after I was working at night, at some point I was like praying, I was saying, listen, I need to not have to worry about whether somebody's on my table or not to get paid. I need you to work that out. Come on now, figure that out for me. 
And certainly what happened was I got a phone call. I didn't clear blue sky from someone that I graduated from in 2000. We graduated. We were not in contact with each other. In 2005, he called me and said, would you consider working with cancer patients? I said, I don't know. Yeah, why not? You know, I had nothing to compare it to as a massage. Come on, why not? And um, I did. I went for the interview. I got the job. It actually was at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And I worked there for six and a half years. And when I was there, uh, it was an interesting experience there because um, I was hired to be there, but wasn't necessarily wanted there. Um, I'm a little bit too outspoken. I, I, I have for a long time been on a quest to speak my truth as much as I can. And sometimes it's rough and sometimes it sounds like I'm being aggressive because that's how the person receiving it needs to receive it because they need me to be the bad guy, right? Uh, at least that's what I've understood now that I'm older, that I needed to be, the, you needed somebody to be the bad guy, you needed to be the victim. I just happened to be the one and you know what? I could handle it because I, no matter what you did, I was always gonna figure out what I needed to do to move, to move what I was doing forward. And so um, my experience there was I wasn't really being trained but I was being told what not to do. And, and that's a weird place to be because I'm, I'm reading charts, medical charts, right? I had access to charts. I'm reading medical charts and I'm reading information and language that I didn't understand. So, and at the time we're talking 2005, right? At the time, Google, internet, all that wasn't so readily available to us, right? But also what information am I asking this you know, when I'm looking for something, what information am I getting? Like, where am I, what am I looking for? What am I asking for? So my first two years there was really about me figuring out how do I do this work um, and and not hurt anybody. And you not know, Sully, this is when you and I connected. Um, you, you had just begun that and I was in healthcare as well. And I remember we used to take the train together and come back home. We were just talking about our path. So to me, when, when I reconnected with you, that was so beautiful just to see how our paths continue to cross. And yet we took these two different ways of doing things. And um, we still care. We still voice. And we still get in trouble for it. And we still get in trouble for it. However, <laughs> however. That work that you did in Sloan, I remember we used to talk about that because that was like the beginning for you and mm -hmm. getting your hands in. Mm -hmm. but, but my questions for you are around being a massage therapist, how does mental health play out or compare to, to this situation? How is those two things connected, using your hands and mental health of your patients, in this case in Sloan and other, in other places? Well, uh, everything is connected, Jules, right? Your body is connected. We already know, we, you know, we, we heard people say that if you have some kind of emotional trauma, it stays in your body, right? It gets stuck somewhere in your body, right? Um, I learned that when I was doing acupuncture, that, you know, when I was in school for acupuncture, that's one of the things that they say, that something becomes latent, in your body, like something that happened from when you were younger, your brain can compartmentalize it and put it somewhere. But then at some point in your life, it starts to show up. And that has a lot to do with your immune system, right? However old you are, it's the same age your immune system is, right? It's been battling and doing what it needed to do to keep things at bay for a long time. But the battle is not just physical, the battle is emotional, it's mental. It's 
what you say to yourself mm. every day. It's, it's how you feel about things. Um, so when it comes to cancer patients, I, don't, I can't necessarily speak saying that massage um, make, it makes them feel suddenly aware of themselves or, but when I'm, when I've, what I've learned from working with cancer patients is that the cancer, the, 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 the uh, situation that they're going through, the treatment, the cancer, the, all of that makes them become more aware of things. So when we talk about mental health, we're talking, uh, you know, are you aware? What's your self-awareness like? Do you have empathy for yourself? Right? Do you beat yourself up because something didn't happen? Do you see a thing as a failure or something as, okay, I didn't do so well, but let me learn what I didn't know, um, why I didn't do so well. Let me learn that. So how does that affect you? And I think that if nothing else, massage can help to back off the stress, back off the pain, because people could be in pain, right? Back off the stuff that um, feels looming, right? Like, like pain feels looming, mm -hmm. like you can't think straight, um, you know, stress, right? And if you notice, I'm doing this towards my head, right? Mm -hmm. All of that affects, right? Uh, and so massage, if it can back that off a little bit, it gives a little bit of space so that you could get a little bit of clarity on whatever it is that you're getting clarity. Now, the space not be, may not be for a long time. It may just be for a few moments so that you can rest, mm. right? Because we all know also that sleep, when you get sick, what happens? Your body shuts down. It shuts you down. It makes you want to sleep. But sleep is where it replenishes itself. It's where it repairs itself. The body repairs itself. It replenishes itself. It's not just the body. It's the body, the mind, the spirit. All of it gets to replenish during that time of the shutdown of the sleep. And mm -hmm. so if you can get that off of you for a few minutes, like, and you can rest, you know, for a few minutes, it allows, uh, hopefully other stuff to start to come in or just the space. It allows for the space. You know, I always tell people my first thing that I learned with working with uh, cancer patients or <clears throat> was that they, when they, when they learn that they have cancer, they go, you see, all of this is tight, and they don't exhale. And one thing that I discovered was that the massage that I was doing, what I was bringing to the table when it came to massaging people was helping them to exhale. Mm. And so once you can exhale, like it's like you can't keep going, at some point, you gotta let it go, right? Or you're gonna kill yourself. You you you, mm -hmm. you don't have right. So now they you're holding all of this so tight because you were told you have cancer, and and now you have to do something, and you have all of these treatments and surgeries, and ooh, right now the future looks like you know, and in certain age ranges, when people hear cancer, what do they think? They think that. So now you got to think of all of that stuff. You're holding so tight, so you can't not breathe. Be stressed out, have all this on you. You need, it's layers, right? You need some of those layers to get moved away, backed away, pushed away. And, you know, massage may seem simple, but it's powerful. Well, thank you for that. Because I had dropped on my website a blog about the art of breathing. And something I learned 
which was about a person using their mouth to breathe and not using their noses to inhale and exhale, impacting them, especially when stressful situations come abroad. Um, has there ever been a patient, I know you've worked with tons of people, has there ever been a patient or patients that have impacted you the most in, in either way? Tell us about that. Yes. <clears throat> yes, I had one, uh, one patient that uh, was in home hospice. He was a young man. And um, I don't even know how he, they got in contact with me, but they were in walking distance of my house, which is why I took it on. Because when I when I work when I take on a uh, a home hospice client, I pretty much go every day. Now I, I don't promise what time I'm going to get there, but I'm going to get I'm going to go to the house every day until the passing, until they uh, transitioned, whatever the word that you want to use for <laughs> the, the passing. Mm -hmm. So um, I when I met him. He was um, uh, unable to move from his neck down. From his neck down, and um, they, you know, he could talk, but he was, but he could feel pain. Everything you did, he, it was painful for him. Uh, so obviously, the nerve endings were firing. Um, and um, when I met him, he said, uh, "When." first I, when I meet people, I, I'm with the family I meet, but then I want to be alone with the person, right? Because the family has got whatever they have. Like, you know, first of all, you're calling me because you don't want to touch them and you don't want to touch them because you think death is contagious. It's not contagious. So I'm, I'm here. So let me do what I do. And part of what I do, especially when I'm working on someone in their bedroom and I'm looking around the bedroom, I'm looking at pictures while I'm working. I might be doing their feet. I might be working on their hands. I might be not working. So I'm looking around because I want to say to them, I'm acknowledging like, wow, you look beautiful when you were younger. You know, if it's an older person or like, wow, that's a great picture of you over there. So I, my intention is to hold space for them. I'm just acknowledging that you were in this world and that you have a lasting memory. You have you have left things behind for people, right? I'm just reminding them that it's all good. You know, this is part of the process for all of us, right? And so um, I asked the wife, the wife came in, told me everything, you know, and, you know, I, I talked to him and he wasn't very talkative when the wife was in the room. Cause you know, I would ask the question and she would start to answer. So mm -hmm. it was okay. But at some point I said to her, Ken, is it okay if we stay in the room by ourselves? You know, if you don't want to close the door, you don't have to, but I want you to close it a little bit so that we don't have the distraction outside. When someone is dying, they don't need a lot of distractions. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm with him very first day and I work on him and everything I do, he's like, ow, that hurts, you know? And so I said, okay. I said, do you want me to come back tomorrow? I'm asking him because it doesn't matter what anyone else wants. I want to know from him. And he's like, yeah, I do want you to come back tomorrow. You know, he was like, you're a breath of fresh air. I said, well, I could. We ain't talking about you dying. <laughs> he said, yeah, right. So he still had a, uh, you know, a sense of humor, um, and he wasn't mentally uh, depleted, right? His body was uh, uh, betraying him in some respects, but his brain was not. So he was very cognizant of what was going on. He knew that this was it. So I went uh, every day, like I said I would. You know, I tell him what time I was gonna come the next day, or what time I could make it the next day. Third day, fourth day there, I think it was like the third day there. He was like, his wife felt comfortable enough, but also I understood that she needed, she was the caretaker, so she needed to leave the apartment. And she was like, "Are you okay if I go outside for a walk?" I'm like, "Absolutely." She's like, "I'll, I'll only take an hour." I was like, "No, you can take two hours if you want. I don't mind sitting here with him." Um, will work. I'll work as much as I can work. And then when he doesn't want me to work anymore, I won't. And I don't mind sitting here with him because he and I had, had great conversations because he worked 
um, in the music industry too. So we were talking about our experiences, right? So we're, we're not talking about death. We're not talking about cancer. We're talking about this thing that we both love to do for a while, right? And that how much, how exciting it was. So our conversations were like, you know, wonderful. Like he would tell me a story or something he did, but he was what they called a dark child. And that means that somebody, you've ever been to a concert and somebody comes on stage, like, like a drummer will be drumming and then suddenly they throw a stick and then somebody, somebody that you're not paying attention to because they have on black, they come on stage and give them more sticks or they change the, mm -hmm. uh, the guitar strings while the person is playing the guitar. Now that's a really good dark job, but that's what he, that's what he did. And that's what he told me. He told me that it was, his position was called dark child because he would come on stage while the band was there and do whatever they needed to do. So he would tell me the story, the wild stories backstage. You know, I would tell the stories working with, working in the studio, right? We, I mean, that's just three or four days in, but we were having a great time talking. Well, on the, this day, he said to me, I need, I need to know if you could help me with something. I'm like, sure, anything you want. I thought he was gonna tell me, ask me to talk to his wife, tell his wife to back off with the sadness and everything. Mm -hmm. No, he said, my birthday, is on this particular day and I want to make it to my birthday. And I said, that's it, five weeks away. And he said, I know, but I think I can do it. I need your help. I said, okay, if you're willing to do it, I'll be here every day. He was like, okay. And I did, I went every day. We talked every day. Some days were worse than others. And the day before his birthday, um, I went to go see him. And I said, guess what? He was like, tomorrow's my birthday. I was like, listen, you did it. He was like, no, we did it, right? Because when I would go there, at some point, his, his wife would just leave the house. Like, it was okay with me if she left the house. And at one point, he, she, uh, he would say, like, put on Judge Judy. I want to watch Judge Judy. And I was like, why do you want to watch Judge Judy? He was like, because my wife won't let me use it. My wife won't let me watch it. I was like, but why? He was like, because it's funny. I was like, okay. But if I heard the keys rattling at the door, I would jump up and turn the TV off. <laughs> right? And that was our joke. Technically, that was our joke. Like, like two little kids doing something mommy said don't do. And then when we hear the keys in the door, we. so I think that we both were having joy and finding joy and silliness and and laughter and life in what we were doing and talking about. Um, and it was amazing. And the day before his birthday, he was, I went to see him, he was a little lethargic and I was like, I said to his wife, I think he needs some hydration, but not the kind where you're making him drink something, but you need to send him to the hospital. And, and you know, maybe the visiting nurse needs to take him to the hospital. And the visiting nurse and I, we, I, I left a notebook for her and I to leave notes to each other, right? I, I would tell her what I worked on, what his skin was like, uh, whatever. And then she would write a note to me. So I left a notebook by his bed and his wife could write in it if she wanted to. Anybody could write in the notebook, but it was really just some way for us to know how, what was going on from when I saw him, when she saw him, right? <clears throat> and... Um, she said, she, the wife said, okay, I'm going to call the visiting nurse. Well, she did. She said, oh, you're not coming. To, I don't want you to come. You know, like you can't come today. So, cause we're going to, um, like I was there. I think I was there. Anyway, I, I told she, she was like, I'm going to take him to the hospital. So we, I didn't do any work. I think I just didn't do any work. So it was something that happened with the, with the, with me actually working on him. I didn't do that. And so later on, she calls me and says, Felicia, you were right. He's at the hospital. I had to take him to the hospital. And they 
you hear him in the background. So in the background, I could hear him saying, Felicia, we did it. We mm. did it. Like we did it. Now this is the night before. And I said, yeah, we did. She said, what is he talking about? I said, she, I said, he didn't tell you. She said, no, I said, well, you should ask him. But basically I believe tomorrow's his birthday. Right. She said, yeah. I said, well, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to make it to his birthday. She was like, oh my goodness. Right. So just a general conversation. I hear him in the background. I tell him good night. I say, good for you. I'll talk to you tomorrow. She called me a little bit after midnight and told me he took his last, his last breath. Mm. And I was like, what? And she was like, he's gone. And I said, well, you know, he's, he said he wanted to make it to his birthday. She said he told her and that she was grateful that I was around. And the reality of it is that I was grateful that I was around because I got to learn that no one gets to give you a date. And if you, your spirit is willing, if, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I just understood for the first time, like, you ain't what people say when all of this is going down. And no one gets to give you a date because they were saying that whole time, telling the wife the whole time that he ain't going to make it. He ain't going to make it. He ain't going to make it. And so he was the most, he's, he's a story that I tell when I'm teaching. Um, massage therapists have worked with cancer. He's a story that I tell because I'm saying like, be you. If you have joy, bring your joy to the table. That might, even if they can't respond to you, that might just be what they need to hear. And it might not, it might not, might not elongate their time here, but it might make that little bit of time that they have here just so wonderful at this moment. So he was my most um, impactful client. And I've had another client. It was another young woman who the doctors kept telling her there was nothing they could do for her. And then one day she called me, she's like, I'm moving to Canada. I'm moving back to Canada with my parents, with my mother. I said, why? And she said, because there's nothing else they could do. And she was young. And I said, girl, what you really want to do? She said, I really want to go to California. I said, then make the plan. Make the plan and go to California. That was, um, let me see, 2017, 18? Mind you, I don't think she's she was supposed to be here. She's still here now. She's in California, she's living her best life. She's doing what she wants to do. She's mm -hmm. having a great time. So people, the things that have impacted me is when people say, the doctor told me I can't, or the doctor said, there's nothing else they can do. Well, there's nothing else they can do. But they're not, they're not, they're not the final say, technically. So for me, it is all about, I'm learning, I'm learning. I'm learning. The people that are impacting, the work that I do impacts me in a way that helps me to recognize, like, how to be kind to myself, you know, like, how to be gentle with myself, how to um, ask for what I want, and how to trust mostly myself. Feli. I mean, because I know you for so many years, this is uh, such a beautiful story that you shared with us today. And our listeners um, are blessed to hear that there are people out here that we use on our platform as like more than just. We just don't back down. We just keep pushing. And thank you for sharing that beautiful story. But you are that genuine. You are going in there being a therapist, being a friend, being a family member. And thank you and to all the people who are out here making that difference. But your own practice also was something of a miracle, so to speak. Tell us about this whole thing, that, that how did you get into your own practice? 
Well, my, I, I've had a couple of practices. I had a practice where I was just had clients and, you know, that was great. And then I had a practice where I had um, um, only worked with oncology clients and went to their homes. Um, and that was great too. And then, um, and, and I'm calling this my practice, teaching massage therapists, uh, credentialed massage therapists, how to work with oncology patients, how to really bring themselves to the table. Teaching is my newest practice. That is what I've been doing. That is, you know, in 2014. So I know I told you this story and I'm going to tell you again right now. So in 2014, in, in, in 2013, 14 or something, I was working at NYU Clinical Cancer Center. And I was working at Esalen Kettering at the same time at some point. But while I was at, uh, at NYU, I was being asked to train some of the, the therapists that they were bringing in. So this was this new program that, that started in 2009. And then it, it was basically um, mas uh, massage therapists walking around on the infusion floor asking, client, asking patients and clients and nurses if the patient wanted to get a massage while they were getting their, their chemo. And that at the time in 2009 wasn't really happening, at least not in New York, that nothing like that was really happening. It wasn't happening at Sloan Kettering. I don't believe it was happening at Mount Sinai and it definitely wasn't happening at NYU. So this was an outside company that wanted to bring this into NYU and introduce it to NYU. And I happened to be on that team. I went in, uh, I got hired as a, a senior therapist and I went in, uh, recognizing that no one else on the team, most of the other people on the team didn't really have experience with oncology. So there were things that I had learned when I was at Sloan Kettering not to do, and then things that I learned to do, questions that I learned to ask. I learned how to read um, and, and, and figure out how to move my way through a medical, someone's medical chart, especially when it's a heavy medical chart, right? So now it's now having these conversations with people who didn't have this experience, who are now reading, not charts that are on computers, but charts that are on paper, right? Mm -hmm. Charts, and it's like, so where do I start? Like, what do I do? Where do I start? So it was really those kind of things, making suggestions to people. Um, and so I went into, uh, I was doing that. And then one point I said to one of the managers that we had there, like, why don't we just do uh, a training program and see if NYU can sponsor it and then we can give CEs. And she said, no, NYU, NYU can't do that. They're not, they're not ready for that. They're not going to do it. But then at some point, this idea of this training program started to consume me. No voice in the back of my head was like, you need to make this happen. Right. And it started to consume me to the point where I couldn't think of anything like, you know, and one day I was on the train. You know, try a lot of things happen in New York City train stations. I mean, on New York City train transit. Well, I was on a train. And I had my head down. There was nobody on the car with me when I was on my way downtown. I had my head down and I was praying and I was saying, listen, I can't handle this consumption in my head of this thing that, especially since I don't know all the ins and outs of doing continuing education. And I don't want to learn that. So either take this away from me or make it easy. Literally, I have my head down and I'm praying. I feel like the tears are right here because I'm so consumed with this, right? It's taking over every thought, every my, every waking thought. And I, I that's crazy. Like for me, I was like, this is a little insane. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there. I felt the tears and I looked up 
and right sitting, there was nobody else on the car but the two of us sitting directly across from me was a teacher that I had at the Swedish Institute where I went to school for massage. Hmm. He was sitting there with a smile on his face. And I looked up and I said, oh, his name was Michael. I said, oh, Michael, I got this idea. I jumped up, I ran and sat next to him and I started to, I got this idea and I don't, and I don't know, and I need help. And, I don't and he was looking at me like this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Clearly he wasn't sure what to do. If, like, should I be afraid or should I? Cause he was like, so I, I and and finally he said, uh, uh, Felicia, I'm working on something. Can you can can does this have to happen tonight? Like now, or can it wait for like a few weeks? Can it wait for six weeks or so? Because I think it's going to take me six weeks to finish what I'm doing. I said no, I can wait for six weeks. He's like, okay, I'll call you. I said okay. When he said that he would call me, uh, because I believed it was the answer to what I was asking for at that moment, it allowed me to now not think small because then technically i was thinking four classes i would teach them it'd just be an introduction to working with a cancer patient well now when he said yes and I, I had six weeks suddenly now i'm thinking bigger and bigger and bigger it went from four classes to 14 classes and for me me being the teacher to me asking other people to be teachers and me calling people and say listen i'm thinking about having a class, having this program to teach massage therapists, would you consider, before I could even finish my sentence, whoever I was speaking to was like, I'm in. What do you need me to do? Right? And so by the time he called me, which he did, he really called me like six weeks later. He said, I need you to come see what I was working on. I go to this, this place where he gives me the address. I go to this place. And what he was doing was he was actually building out a continuing education center for massage therapists. Hmm. And so it was almost completed. And when I went up there, I now went to him and said, okay, it's no longer this small thing that I was thinking about. It's this bigger situation. And hmm. I didn't want to do the learning curve of learning how to do CEs, asking for C. I didn't want to do that. He was already doing that. So his part was, let's partner. You do the CEs, you have the space, you do the CEs, and let me put this program together. So his, his thing would always say, he would always say to me, Put your dream program, build your dream program. And that's what I did. I built my dream program. So my practice at that point was building this dream program. I was in school for uh, acupuncture at the time too. So my practice was really building this dream program. Um, I stopped working at NYU at some point because I needed to go to school full time and building this dream practice, this dream, this dream program, which was my practice, which to this day, really technically still is my practice. My practice is education, right? And educating massage therapists um, on ways uh, to critically think through things, right? And so it's still massage. I still massage people. I still put my hands on people, but it's it just is a, a little bit different. It is more like if me massaging someone, a cancer patient, is just me massaging a cancer patient. Me helping five people learn how to do this properly and um, and and thoughtfully now means that there's five more patients that, that can be seen at the same time. You understand what I mean? So it now becomes a, a this thing where it's a, I'm, I'm of service to helping people be of service. Hmm. So that's what happened when I started with that. And so when you ask about my practice, my practice has changed. 
over the past, over the past few years uh, to what it is now and what it is Could now. You tell us a little bit like so, so as a leader in this industry, because I know the years of work you've put into this. Tell us about an African American woman back then getting into this practice, not you, just any. And now where do you think that this has gone? Is there, is it better? Is it different? Is it hard to become a licensed massage therapist? Okay. No, it's not hard to become a licensed massage therapist in New York state. You just, you have to go to school. You have to get an associate's degree. You have to take a state exam, a licensing exam. You have to get your license from the office of professions where all people licensed in New York, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs all get theirs from that same place. Um, so you have to be, you have to go to school. I'm, I'm, I presume that all around the country in the United States, you have to go to school in New York. I think, I believe it's a thousand hours of uh, schooling that you get, which makes it a 16 month program. You get an associate's degree and then, um, in other places there, there's certificates. So New York wants you to have a license and other places in the country want you to have a certificate. So there, they might have a 600, a 600 hour, uh, program or 650 hour program, but you have to go to school to do it. And so that journey is not that hard. What I would say to anybody that wants it, that was thinking like, I was thinking I want to be a massage therapist. I say, go get massages on a regular basis. So that before you even go to school, you know what it feels like to get a massage. You know what it feels like when it's good. You know what it feels like when it's not good because you're not just learning um, the, the, the brain stuff. You need to learn the technical stuff, the tactile stuff. You need that is the stuff. Right. And you don't learn that by just doing. You learn it by receiving. So go to school. So go get massages. And trust me, massages are good. They're very, very good. So you want to go get massages to go learn this craft. That's that's how you're going to learn it. That's how it becomes internal to you. That's how it becomes visceral for you. Because you know what feels good and what doesn't feel good. Now you get to go learn the other technical stuff. And then you go put it into play. Um, and then... Massage therapy doesn't really um, uh, talk about specializing. I talk about it to people. Specialize in something. Specialize in oncology. Specialize in Parkinson's. Specialize in a modality like lymphatic drainage. Specialize in something. So that in your, in your uh, circle, in your community, you become the go-to person for that. And it also leaves you room so that you don't I don't need to know everything. I can take any modality class that I want to learn. I can take any of those. So now it just brings me back to, so how do I now apply this on any of the patients that I'm working with, any of the oncology clients that I have? How do I apply what I learned on any of them? And mind you, I can learn anything I want to learn because you've got to have, in New York, you have to have 36 hours of continuing education credits in order to, to maintain your license. So my presumption is around the country is like that. You have to have a certain amount of continuing education uh, credits to maintain your license or your your certificate. But back when I became, when I started working at Sloan County, so as a massage therapist in the general world, high-end uh, uh, spas and um, hotels, I there might have been a Black woman and a Black man on the team of massage, mm -hmm. right? So there was always at least one of us on those teams. When I went into the um, the first few years that I was in the uh, oncology world, 
I would always be the only uh, person of color in the room or on the team. Mm. And now, um, and even in the classes, when we did the classes at Kata, which is Kata is Michael's center, um, uh, where he built the space. And so it was called the Kata Oncology Massage Training Program because it was being, it was being done there. But even at Kata, when we gave the classes, we gave classes um, from 2015 until uh, 2020. And we did a couple of those online. Even then there were, if there were, let's say 20 people that went through the entire program, 20, 25 people that went through the entire program, it was probably maybe four people, four brown people, four black people. Mm -hmm. Um, it was expensive and it took time out of it, right? It, it was a $5,000 all-in program, about $5,000 if you were taking the entire program. <clears throat> but it also was on weekends. So if you are a massage therapist that works at spas and that's when you make your money, so now we're telling you don't make money, spend money to come learn this craft, to come mm -hmm. learn this stuff, right? So not everybody can afford to do that. And so reality of it is when you ask what is it like for someone brown i can't speak for all the black people all the brown people that are out out there i can only tell you that in my experience from my time that i became a massage therapist until now there's not always a lot of us in the room doesn't mean that we're not doing it, it just means that we're not in those kind of rooms can you see this changing or what's trending now that's making this available that we as minorities can get these opportunities moving forward? Well, I, I believe that it could happen. I don't, I don't see why not, because all of a sudden there's a lot more jobs opening up in, hosp in hospitals and cancer centers and in hospitals in general, there's a mm -hmm. lot more places opening up. I think, you know, some of it is you, you, you you realize that a lot of the hospitals, a lot of these big corporations, they have these, now they have these uh, directors of inclusion and diversity, diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason why you need that director is because you're not including people. There is no diversity, right? And when there is diversity, a lot of times that person doesn't, like I felt alone a lot because there was, you. every time I'm talking to you, if I'm saying something in a particular way, now I'm being aggressive. So now I need to shut up and not mm -hmm. talk, right? So now, now I'm not talking, now I'm being passive aggressive. Wait, <laughs> I'm not gonna win here, right? Uh, and there were times when I was being passive aggressive because I was sending a, a silent message, but I was doing that because it's like, I'm not winning, so it doesn't really matter. I'm not gonna pay you any attention. I'm gonna do what I do and mm -hmm. I'm gonna do me. And so that, but that's still, you're, you're, there's a, like, it's almost like you're always in the muck, right? And it ain't even my muck. It wasn't even my muck, it's your muck, it's your stuff. It's your biases, it's your judgments, it's your, right? And instead of just having the conversation, you now decide that you know who I am or you know what I'm doing, right? You know what this means. And here's the kicker, when I'm talking and I'm very passionate about something, I'm doing a lot of this, right? My voice gets deep because I'm telling you something that I really love doing, right? And that is how you decided that you can't hear the message because of the way that you think that I'm saying something. That has nothing to do with me. And so the fact that they have these diversity and inclusion um, departments, which is really funny because they're departments, they're people in these departments, but they never go into the actual building. So HR is at, at NYU, HR was in a whole different building. How do you know what it looks like, it feels like in the building that other folks are working in? You don't, 
but you inclusion and diversity. All right, <laughs> good for you. So can that change? Will it change? Is it changing? I presume that it is changing because I know people that went through the oncology program who are um, of different descents and they actually got jobs in hospitals. Um, I know that when I worked at NYU and when there was an opportunity for another black woman to get a job, I, I fought for it, even though she was more qualified than the person, they, a person that they hired, but they told me that it was because she was older and they thought she was slow. I'm like, so then put her over here. Like, she doesn't have to work in this building. She can work in this building. You have a building that's only one floor. You have another building that's got a couple floors. Put her in the floor, the building with the one floor, right? She wound up being a treasure, right? So the fact that someone was there, I was there to fight for it. And the person that I was fighting with wasn't really a fight. She she understood where I was coming from because I was saying like, nah, you, you're doing this and it's not the right thing to do, but I'm telling you to do this. And you're telling me, you want me to run this. You want me to be the the one that's helping you audit the, the the stuff and come up with the protocol. So give me give me something here that lets me know that it's worthy, that that my time, energy, and talent is worthy of a yes, right? And it wasn't even a yes for me. It was a yes for someone else. But I don't know until you actually can change the powers of that be or mm -hmm. change their minds change their views uh, or change the human beings that are there until you can do that. I can't really tell you. So really, it's really about a matter of we need to create our own spaces. You know, mm -hmm. Fairly with that thought in mind, um, the floor is yours. Just tell our listeners, leave them with something to remember you. I know your legacy is great. There's so much that you're going to do. And I'm, I'm so excited about what's up next for you. But my thing is, let our listeners just with some words of encouragement, you, you left us with great stories and your journey is beautiful. What do you want our people to listen to and remember you by? Really? I would just tell everybody what I learned in the massage world. What I learned in the oncology massage world is be thoughtful of yourself, be kind to yourself. And, and in reality of it is, and being thoughtful of yourself and doing something, you know, like you're walking towards someone and they're walking towards you. Um, it is so easy to decide not to step out of the way because you want them to step out of the way. But that little gesture of stepping out of the way, it, you're doing it for you, not necessarily for the other person, but that gesture ripples out. And it, it whether people recognize it as, as you just did something for yourself, it still ripples out, and it and it it made everybody not be mad because you didn't we didn't bump shoulders, <laughs> right? Yeah, like mm -hmm. you're not mad, I'm not mad. Everybody has a good day. Somebody else might have seen that you know I, I took the step to the side, and that was really me just being kind and gentle with myself, and that is one of the things I learn every day when I work with people that I can tell from the way that they treat their own bodies that it, that's not the norm. That is not what happens all the time. So if you can do that for yourself, if you can look out for yourself, you know, people talk about self-care, like it's a, such a, such a interesting phrase because it's gotten so played, right? But the tree reality of it is it's caring for yourself. Care for yourself first. 
because that will reflect into how you care for other people and how people see you caring, right? My, when my mom was dying, she um, said to me, she uh, had uh, dementia. And so one of the last times that she said my name, because, you know, whenever somebody would say to her, Miss Newsom, do you know what it says? She said, she looked me up and down. She said, she belongs to me. <laughs> I was like, but I'm Felicia. She's like, mm-mm. She'd be like, mm-mm. <laughs> She'd look up, up mm-mm. look the other way. But one of the last times she, one of the last things she said to me when, um, when she recognized who I was, I was uh, sitting by her bedside and I had my head down and I was actually crying. I seem to do that a lot when I tell my stories. They always have something to do with crying or the little voice, right? But um, I was actually crying because I I felt um, like I didn't, I wasn't doing a good job. I didn't know what the best answers for were her, for her. Like uh, her body was starting to shut down. And I didn't know, like I didn't, I didn't know. I just didn't know. And, you know, trying to make decisions for someone else's life and the decision that you're making is, you, you, you know, do you pull a plug? Do you don't pull a plug, right? Like you're, you're in this weird space of, and, and it was my mom, right? When I'm working with cancer patients, I don't feel that because I'm not personally involved. Now I was personally involved with someone. And, and so it was this weird thing. So I, I had my head down and I looked up and I finally, you know, could figure myself out. And I looked up and when I looked up, she was looking at me and she said, what's, what's going on? And I told her, mommy, I just don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know what to do. I just can't, I feel like I'm not making really good decisions here for you. And she said, Felicia, make the best decisions for your life. And those will be the best decisions for mine. Hmm. And that was the day that my mom, it's almost like she released me to be okay with doing me, with finding my lane, staying in my lane and doing what I do in my lane. So I make the best decisions for my life always first. And that's what I would leave your, your listeners with. Make the best decisions for your life always first. And that will ripple out to everybody else that you come in contact with. My dear friend, thank you so much for oh, such yeah. an amazing show. And I want to remind everyone that when you take into practice caring about yourself, think about the words that Felicia shared with us today. Think about being kind to yourself first. Take these times and spaces to enjoy your lunch. Worship the people that are with you. Enjoy their company. Enjoy your family members. Work together. Because remember, this platform was built because often as people, we were labeled and overlooked. We weren't considered a family, but we are now because our plight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals and we're unstoppable when we unite. Remember, keep tuning in to the He's Just a Social Worker movement because it's coming very soon to a town near you. We out. Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients. Thank you for listening. We're always here for you. Just message us and we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you. More than just at He's Just a Social Worker. In memory of my mother, Matilde De La Rosa, this is dedicated to you, Mom. Miss you so much. En memoria de mi madre, Matilde De La Rosa, esto va dedicado a ti, Mamá.
te extraño mucho.